Game Cool Books, Episode 74, A Melancholy Light. Chapter 30, The Clouded Mountain, opens with lines from Paradise Lost. Far off the imperial heaven extended wide in circuit, undetermined square or round, with opal towers and battlements adorned of living sapphire. In context, this is book two, the very end of it, and that's only shortly after the epigraph that opens the golden compass, where Satan is contemplating his journey. This is after he's made his journey through chaos and is on the verge of reaching the newly created earth. So in a way, these chapters represent the furthest point, the furthest distance from our starting point back at the beginning of the series, but in a way they also represent a return home, because of course for Satan, heaven was home, and for all of us, this earth is ours. So the chapter opens right where the previous one left off in Mrs. Coulter piloting the intention craft, as we might have guessed. She's alone in the cockpit, although, of course, her demon is there. And she's telling where she's going, not by relying on any instruments, but by the light of the fires of fallen angels, searchlights, lightning like a beacon in the storm. And she has to move past fighting beings and ships uh, carried along and riding this tumult like a wave rider in a peaceable ocean. So there's something remarkable about this craft that she's using and also perhaps about her uh, her own equanimity in this chaotic moment. So she is pretty closely connected here with the Satan of Milton's Paradise Lost. Her demon, too, uh, calls to her, although we don't hear what words he might be saying. As she approaches, she is dazzled by the mountain, and this idea of being dazzled will come back again when she meets Metatron. She is reminded of an abominable heresy whose uh, inventor is now rightly languishing in the dungeons. This heresy is, in fact, of course, a well-regarded theory of physics now, that there are more spatial dimensions than three. This particular version of the theory posits seven or eight spatial dimensions that are too small to be seen, but that this experimental theologian created a model in order to show before it was exercised and burned. Mrs. Coulter got a look at it, and her impression is that its inside was everywhere and its outside everywhere else. She's reminded of that now, kind of like Lyra was reminded of the photo mill that they saw when they were first thinking about what might power the alethiometer. Now, for her, it's the clouded mountain that she's thinking about. And it's not a rock to her, but more like a force field. Again, she is feeling 
an exaltation here. Um, so she is certainly rising to the challenge that this poses. So the connection there is uh, more so to her daughter, Lyra. Um, she's making discoveries right away, uh, not only about the confusing geometry of the mountain, but its light. Um, as she lands, she notes that the substance of the mountain gives off its own light, the way that the angels themselves seem to have light shining on them. This might be the origin of that mysterious shining. It is a soft, breath-like uh, radiance of mother of pearl. So as difficult it is to imagine the spatial quality of this place, the visual and specifically the illumination uh, is pretty clear for the reader. The feeling that she has is of beings speeding through the mountain, carrying messages. So again, whatever was powering the alethiometer, something very similar, only more uh, palpable is, is going on here. Going through these enfolded perspectives, this impossible to comprehend geometry. As she's making up her mind which way to go, she hears the voices of singers in a psalm. And we're not told which psalm it is they're singing, um, but they bear a procession and a litter between them um, that carries a indescribably aged being. It is to her something that looks like an angel, only older. Uh, where the bearers falter on seeing the intention craft there. This being with his mumbling mouth, muttering to himself, utters a howl of anguish. Now it's not clear if that's because of the intention craft, but um, he seems to have some complicated uh, reaction to this novelty. Um, but the angels who bear him away are on their mission and undeterred, they fly off. Uh, so sort of like we saw the intention craft at the end of the last chapter, we will pick up with them uh, in the next section. Mrs. Coulter moves upward um, through that invisible activity all around her and in a piazza is encountered by an angel with a spear. So this guard angel challenges her and she looks curiously at him and thinks of those angels who fell in love with the daughters of men so long ago. Um, that's a reference to the opening of, of the Noah story in Genesis 6. And that passage is taken to uh, explain, so to speak, the creation, the generation of giants, uh, but also um, beings who are in some way between human and angel, all sorts of spirits, elves, and that sort of thing. Um, now, this would probably be more relevant for Pullman's expanded world in a book like The Secret Commonwealth. Um, but it is interesting here that we get a kind of mix of biblical time and uh, ordinary or scientific time. Again, that blending uh, is more thorough in Lyra's world and Mrs. Coulter's world, 
where experimental theologians are subject to the Inquisition for their discoveries. But it's unclear exactly how this is supposed to work in Pullman's world. Um, how long ago was that? Uh, and Regent's, uh, the Metatron's genealogy, uh, similarly has this, this kind of ambivalence about it of um, being directly descended from Adam as if uh, that was a human being um, like, uh, like Metatron clearly was. Um, and this goes back to Lyra's questions of Lord Asriel when she finally meets him at the end of the Golden Compass. She's asking about uh, the literal truth of these stories in Genesis and how they are connected with her and her world. Um, and Asriel there gives her a mathematical metaphor to think about with imaginary numbers. Um, so I think the long and short of it is we can sort of take this um, at face value and use it to go along with the story. But if we do start to pick it apart, uh, it's very difficult to pin down that chronology, as we've noticed all along. Anyway, um, she keeps this guard off balance. She tells him to take her to the regent at once. And because he doesn't know what to do, he does as he's told. Um, her reflections here are kind of similar uh, to Will's when he's thinking about how to deal with authorities in his world. Uh, whereas Will tries to stay invisible, though, Mrs. Coulter's natural inclination, like Lyra's, is to lie uh, and carry things off with confidence and bravado. So there is a, another moment here where she is dazzled. As she passes through a kind of door, she encounters this being made of light. Um, this is very similar to the portrayals of Greek gods uh, in stories like uh, Danae and the Golden Shower, um, the impossible brilliance of Jove or the other gods. Um, so not only are we getting connections to science, and the invented technology, but um, to mythology here as well. There's just an awful lot, um, very like Milton himself, Pullman is uh, alluding and drawing on at this point. So he asks at once, where is she? Where is Lyra? Um, and Mrs. Coulter lies that she has not got her daughter, but her daughter's demon in her power. Then she begins to flatter. She tells Metatron to hide his uh, brilliance a little bit because her eyes are dazzled. And she can still see him uh, like looking at the sun through a smoked glass, um, but she pretends to be dazzled. He is described uh, as a powerfully built man. Um, so the... Uh, Lack of um, uh, clarity here is actually to do with his clothing. Um, she can't tell whether he's clothed or naked because she can't look away from the force of his eyes. So this is an interesting bit of ambivalence, um, thinking about the importance of clothing as far as the fall. Um, he, as a human being, um, 
presumably had a demon at one time, um, but he seems uh, uninterested in discussing that. Um, he is more suspicious at this point and is asking about um, the story that Mrs. Coulter is concocting here. She tells him that Azriel is there with the demon and is trying to keep uh, them apart, um, Lyra and her demon, until her coming of age, um, keep them safe, that is, uh, safe from Metatron. And she directly uh, faces Metatron and tells him to look at her and tell her what he sees. So she's going to brave this searching gaze, um, an examination of her body, her ghost, her demon, that is uh, rendering her um, completely without concealment. So she is described as naked in all of those ways. And she hopes that her nature will answer for her. So the connection here is made explicitly to Lyra's um, uh, trick of uh, Yofor. And there, Lyra was tricking Yofor about what he most desired, which was a demon. In this case, she, uh, Mrs. Coulter, is lying about what the angel most desires. And that seems to have two parts to it, as we'll hear in a moment. Um, but where Lyra lied with her words, Mrs. Coulter lies with her whole life. Uh, that is, every bit of her past and her thoughts are laid bare. Um, Metatron narrates for us what he finds there, uh, among other things, a vicious probing curiosity, so a bad sort of curiosity, um, a manipulative, uh, calculating nature who does no kind deed without thinking how it will come back to her own advantage, um, her glories in her own treachery and deceit, and sums it up that she is a cesspit of moral filth. And at this, she feels a little gush of triumph, that just the sort of thing Lyra feels on telling a story well, um, because she has successfully tricked the angel. She tells him that she can betray Asriel just as easily, and that her plan is that they should destroy Asriel. Um, at this point, we get a... Uh, simile that comes straight from Pullman's own earlier work, uh, Galatea, his novel. Um, this is something that leapt out to me when I finally got a chance to read it. Um, so let me read these two passages out. So in the Ember Spyglass, she felt the movement of vapor about her and her senses became confused. His next words pierced her flesh like darts of scented ice. When I was a man, he said, I had wives in plenty, but none was as lovely as you. The passage in Galatea 
comes from a section called the electric horrors and it runs the air about me crackled with tension time and again i was penetrated by shafts of electricity like darts of scented ice but still i could not find the horrors and began to wonder desperately if i were not on the way to becoming unreal pretend you're not then came the swift reply from the air so the connection here is probably worth going into uh, a bit more detail and it is something I want to talk about when I do a little discussion of Galatea um, to put all that into context but it's extremely interesting just on the face of it that Pullman borrows whole cloth this phrase darts of scented ice uh, in these two kind of pivotal moments uh, of these two books so the uh, image is one of intense uh, internal conflict, uh, this kind of threshold between the physical and the spiritual, uh, or at the very least, the moral. Um, it's the connection between Mrs. Coulter as a human woman and Metatron as an angel who was once a man. Um, he, at this point, rehearses his genealogy once more, talks about how he was taken by the authority to the kingdom. And that taking, I think it's fair to again read as something like uh, Jupiter and Ganymede into that. Um, the next bit here he himself understood the angels who fell in love with human women and pleaded their cause but the authority had fixed his heart against them and he made metatron prophesy their doom um, that seems to be very close to the kind of hatred of the flesh uh, that Pullman so often reads into the church, whether in his fiction or in the real world. Um, so this kind of perfume coldness um, that is so visceral and yet so abstract in some other ways, um, it, it just makes for an extremely memorable phrase uh, and i guess that's why i picked up on it um, but it makes me wonder also how much not just literally um, but in the background in the ideas uh, pullman is drawing on his earlier works galatea and even the haunted storm his first novel um, and bringing them in and converting them into his much more successful and, and compelling fiction um, in his Dark Materials. And so Mrs. Coulter ups the ante even further here. She says, isn't it time that Metatron took a wife again after all these long ages, that she offers herself to be his consort? And this is the moment when she is most exposed. Um, 
not only has he been searching her and examining her for any hints of uh, goodness, but in this moment she is placing herself physically within his power as well. Um, and he reaches out. Um, she does this because she trusts in the power of her own body. And she knows this strange truth about angels um, that they covet those physical bodies, that flesh. So again, that perfume, um, that skin texture uh, of hers this time intoxicates the angel and she feels his hands scalding her. She uh, hears a crackling like the moment before you realize your house is on fire. An interesting turn to the second person there. Um, and she promises to take Metatron to Azrael right away. So those angels carrying the litter are bearing the authority himself, it turns out, uh, to a safe place because Metatron wants him kept alive a little longer. And Metatron's choice here is to trust to the obscurity of the storm rather than sending a large force with him to protect him. The narrator says it would have worked if a cliff guest had not looked up, a particular one who had a memory of a babbling arctic fox. This goes back to the beginning of the Amber Spyglass. And it might also be a dig at Tolkien's famously unexplained talking fox from early in the Lord of the Rings. Um, the uh, moment there passes um, and we'll see the consequences of it shortly. Um, we jump to Zephaniah uh, and her angels finding and enlarging the caverns below the fortress where a crack has appeared since the bomb went off. By the faint illumination of a kind of river of light, uh, Azrael descends, and as he goes down, he realizes that what he's seeing by is dust, visible with the naked eye. And because there's so much there flowing together, he's able to tell that he's in a vast cavern uh, the size of a dozen cathedrals. Um, so if those trees in the world of the Mulefa were like the arches of cathedrals, um, this emptiness is worth a dozen of them, uh, surely a significant uh, number there. And by this... Um, light of the dust fall, this melancholy light, you can see the pit of the abyss. And the dust is compared to the stars of every galaxy, but each one is a fragment of conscious thought. Um, as he goes deeper and deeper, he can see across the chasm to where the ghosts in the gloom are making their way through the world of the dead and to the opening that Lyra and Will made there. He says that Lyra came here, although of course not on the side he is. All his demon replies is that he must tread carefully. Um, so there's a interesting um, ambiguity about how he's feeling about Lyra at this point, um, which Mrs. Coulter talked to him about already, um, that demon 
side of himself seems to try to keep him focused on the mission, though. Um, one last brief shift in perspective here brings us back to Will and Lyra themselves, um, still in that same place we left them, soaked by the storm, stumbling and in uh, desperate fear. Lyra thinks the lady is dying. Um, Tialis is able to rouse himself to warn them that uh, he hears horses coming and knows that Azrael has no cavalry, so they must hide. Um, they see these centaur-like beings, uh, horses and riders that are almost indistinguishable from one another, um, bearing uh, tridents, nets, and scimitars. And uh, in this um, welter of the storm and the thunder, they stumble upon those cliff ghasts who have uh, brought down the angels bearing that glittering cage of crystal. Um, and that's where this chapter leaves off. It brings us to uh, the climax of this portion of the book, and in some ways the climactic moment of the series as a whole. Chapter 31, Authorities End. Uh, this brings us back to those lines from William Blake that open the amber spyglass uh, for empire is no more and the lion uh, and now the lion and wolf shall cease um, from america a prophecy by william blake pullman has been dipping into that quite a bit jumping around and pulling uh lines out of it um and he will do that again in the, the subsequent chapter but um the echo that you might hear there between empire and imperial, um, spelled like empyrean heaven um, in Milton, I think is probably deliberate uh, by juxtaposing that particular line here um, with the chapter before. Um, so the idea of uh, the end and the cessation of empire um, the end of authority uh, is a tough one to um, to unpack in some ways, because Pullman is on record many times as saying that while he believes in the freedom of the reader, he writes as an authorial figure. Of course, he is in complete control. He calls himself even, uh, I believe, a tyrant um, with absolute power. And so there has always been this tension between the bad sort of authority and the good sort of authority, um, the authorial voice that tells a good story um, that Pullman seems to want to arrogate to himself uh, and to many of his characters who are great storytellers. But here we're going to see the end of the bad authority. And so this comes in two parts, um, the defeat of Metatron and then the passing away of the ancient authority himself. Um, Mrs. Coulter, in a way, is narrating. Uh, she says that Azrael hides and creeps like a rat. She's telling um, Metatron to hold back from striking because she wants to see Azrael's face when he knows that she has betrayed him. Um, and so there is this juxtaposition of levels of betrayal here. Um, and uh, this is reflected in the 
continued insistence on stark contrasts of light and shadow at the opening of this chapter. Um, there's the pillar of light of the dust falling, falling into the abyss. And then this being of brightness who has now rendered himself a dark shadow um, to better hide at her bidding, uh, trembling with desire for her. Mrs. Coulter herself feels great weariness and the angel Metatron can feel her emotions growing suspicious. He asks why she felt that remorse, that regret. But she says that it's because she is glad that her child will never grow up to love and be loved. And she's regretting not Lyra's never growing up, which in truth it is exactly what she is um, missing because she won't be there for it. Um, but she says her own, Mrs. Coulter's own uh, childhood, because she did not know Metatron in her own girlhood and youth. This uh, sets Metatron on a kind of uh, hunger uh, that he can barely control. He seems to gulp at the scent of her flesh. Um, I think we're reminded here probably of the specters in the way that they desire the demon, so the angels desire the human flesh. Um, but they are held back. Uh, Mrs. Coulter had power over the specter. She has power over this angel as well. Um, she pretends to be holding back her own desire for him, uh, reaching for his hand and, and having to uh, draw it away. Um, the uh, nimbus of golden mist about her hair, again, might be a reference to uh, the shower of gold. And she has to try to lull this powerful being into remaining small and uh, manageable. She says he must come as a shadow or Lyra's demon will fly away and escape. The explanation we get here from the narrator is that for all his profound intellect uh, extending across millions of universes, Metatron is blinded by his obsessions. And again, they are twofold, to destroy Lyra and to possess her mother. Um, this uh, setting for the um, climactic battle is permeated by falling dust. Um, Mrs. Coulter's face, like it was at that moment at the end of the first book, is wet with tears. And she's gritting her teeth not to sob aloud as she speaks to Azriel for the last time. He reassures her that the ghost of Will's father is protecting the demons, that they're safe, that, um, as she says, uh, as Azriel himself noticed, dust is beautiful. And Mrs. Coulter um, uh, reports that she lied successfully to Metatron. Um, they will take him to extinction, Azriel says, and that will give Lyra time to grow up. Um, even their ghosts will continue falling in the abyss, uh, but it doesn't matter now that this means that uh, Lyra will be safe. Now, um, the chronology here becomes 
strangely exact as Mrs. Coulter feels as light and soft in his arms as she felt when Lyra was conceived 13 years before. Um, so this romantic moment is layered on top of uh, this intense conflict and um, sort of melodrama um, and the stark good and evil at play. The betrayal and the wickedness that she is full of is what allowed her, she says, to trick the angel so that he believed her uh, to be capable of betraying Azrael. She lied too well and hid the love that she feels for Lyra under all her evils. Um, and she asks aloud, where did this love come from? It came like a thief in the night. Um, the allusion there to the parables, um, the thief in the night is present in uh, Matthew um, and also in Revelation, uh, a few other places in the New Testament. Um, it is uh, echoed in another way by the mustard seed that she then compares the love to. Um, it started no bigger than a mustard seed, but uh, it has taken root and its green shoot is splitting her heart so that she was afraid he would see. Um, so the parables there liken the kingdom and the end of the world to a thief in the night and a mustard seed. Um, they are wrapped up with the person, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who is also telling these stories and parables. Um, and so here, the love itself the love for Lyra, her daughter, is this uh, quality, this relationship to it, um, which takes the place of a relationship with God or with uh, faith in the kingdom. Um, they are precisely combating the kingdom in order to make uh, a world possible for someone like Lyra to grow up in um, and to love and be loved as Mrs. Coulter was regretting earlier. So that recoding of the biblical language um, seems uh, pretty, pretty significant here. Um, and so while the son per se is not present in this book, uh, his um, words very much are. Um, and his quality, uh, his, de his defining qualities of belief, of love, uh, and hope are all here as well, um, distributed amongst uh, Mrs. Coulter and Azrael. So he uh, indeed is going to live up to his namesake, uh, Israel, and wrestle with the angel here, um, the kingdom, he says, will be powerless against Lyra. So the battle scene is uh, extended here. Uh, there are some back and forth between um, Azriel 
Mrs. Coulter and Metatron having the upper hand. But what seems to turn the tide is not so much their flesh, but uh, their cooperation, their togetherness, and not just between the two of them, but also with their demons as well, um, fighting against the one lone angel, Metatron. So he is strong, uh, strong as a bolting horse, we're told. Um, so there's a kind of allusion to Job there, perhaps. Um, he has these wings that he's spreading and that Azrael is trying to keep crushed against him. Um, but he in turn crashes uh, a rock against Azrael's skull and nearly kills him, getting a free wing, um, getting ready to deliver the killing blow. Uh, when the golden monkey leaps and bites into his hand, so he drops the rock. Um, Mrs. Coulter bears his throat uh, for Lord Asriel's demon, Stelmaria, to, to sink her teeth into. Um, and they're able to smother his wings against him um, until he finally breaks free and almost escapes with Asriel clinging to him, pulling him down, so that Mrs. Coulter has to make a leap here. It's a kind of leap of faith. Um, like we saw Lyra make back at the uh, the Bridge of Ice. Here, Lyra's mother, we're told, leapt with all her heart um, and bears them all down together into the abyss. Um, so this uh, redemption of Mrs. Coulter and of Asriel um, takes place in their willingness to sacrifice themselves for their daughter and for all conscious beings. They are born down, down into the abyss, but of course, so is dust. Um, at this point, they are suffused with it, I think we can imagine. Um, and so that certainly will play a role in the general redemption that is to come. So the scene shifts then to the second part of this chapter and the second part of this climactic battle. Will and Lyra are able to fight off the cliff ghasts um, with the help of Tialis, who uh, sacrifices himself, killing the biggest one, leader. Um, Will defends them with the knife and cuts the head away to rescue Tialis's uh, broken and dead body. Um, what is unbroken here in the midst of all this panic and mayhem is the crystal cage. Um, it's stained, it's tilted crazily, but inside they can see that ancient being. As Lyra says, he's so old, he's terrified, he's crying like a baby, so he's never seen anyone suffer like that. And so she wants to help the angel out. Um, Will cuts through with the knife, and the demented being shrinks from what seems like a, sh a threat before um, he holds on with a shaking hand. And wordlessly, as he's helped out, he smiles and makes a little bow. He blinks at them with innocent wonder. So this combination here of utmost experience, the most ancient possible being who's seen everything with a now childlike innocence and wonder. He is called the Ancient of Days, in that biblical language. Um, he's also called light as paper, with no will of his own, and responding to kindness like a flower to the sun. 
This is a passage Pullman has commented on um, and described as, um, well, obviously very intentional to make that connection between paper and the words, uh, the institutions of religion, uh, and this being who um, personifies their authority, um, that ultimately words and religious beliefs are light as paper. They have no flesh in Pullman's understanding. Um, and again, he leaves out that figure of the sun uh, in order to recast him as something more uh, physical, um, as the love between uh, parents and children or between uh, romantic partners. And the uh, form here of the authority is not killed by the subtle knife directly, but instead is loosened and dissolved, his eyes still blinking in wonder. And with a sigh of exhausted relief, he disappears, a mystery dissolving in mystery. So they kill God, not violently, but in a way accidentally and out of pity, out of kindness. Their, um, their love here is much more immediate. Um, it's Will's attention at once turning back to the chevalier um, and uh, crying for his loss. They don't have time to think about what they have just seen uh, at this stage. And it's never really dwelt on uh, in the course of the story. So we get another scene of combat then. Um, again, not with the authority himself, but with it uh, forces of ignorance, of destructiveness that he's unleashed, of oppression. Um, so the cliff ghasts were uh, one aspect of that, um, that kind of ignorance uh, and greed. Um, and these horse-like beings and their riders uh, are the other side of it. Um, again, Metatron being compared to a horse, this is that strength, that oppressive, uh, destructive power. Um, but Will and Lyra have helpers still. Um, though the Chevalier is gone, um, the lady tells Lyra to hold out her hand for the hawk, this indigo hawk that's coming down like a piece of the sky behind it. Um, it is a uh, harbinger of the hundreds of dragonflies with their riders who descend next, um, weaving a kind of tapestry of color and protecting the children, um, leading them to their demons. And at that moment, the lady also dies because only her strength had kept her alive. So uh, contrasting her with the um, captive life of the authority, right? she is uh, free and uh, kept alive by her own will. So they're holding the dead bodies. They're burying them out. So even the fallen body has a great value here and, and the respect that they show uh, Tialis and, and Salmachia will be, um, again, not dwelt on, but will be uh, uh, recurred to uh, in the next chapter. They follow uh, their guides, um, and they are uh, caught by those horse people, 
um, bearing their nets and swinging them like whips to destroy the dragonflies until Yorick and his regiment um, come to the rescue. Uh, they bound over Will and Lyra and crush these um, uh, ambushers. And Will helps out Yorick one more time here, um, not losing his head. He watches how the net that has caught the bear flows around uh, and cuts it. Um, and this is sort of like the, the fable of the mouse and the lion. Um, Will uh, crawling over and deftly setting uh, Yorick free so that he is able to uh, turn his own good strength and, and destructive force against the attackers. Um, the horse and rider are smashed. Uh, the um, uh, children ride on Yorick's back one last time, um, and this time he is in his armor. So um, we could think way back to when Lyra is first becoming self-conscious as she rides on the back of the bear, um, going to find the severed child, uh, Tony Macarios. Um, they pass uh, through a kind of whirlwind of violence here, um, a, a kind of epitome of the world wars uh, with the guns shelling uh, and the flares of light a cold green unnatural light um, and in the midst of the battle the one key uh, point is the grove of trees where they can sense at once that their demons are being protected as uh, the ghosts hold the specters at bay um, they can see them uh, clearly now um, and they're feeling the shock of air, the sting of earth, as these shells fall around them. They're gripping that armor between them. Um, they're seeing how the witches are in action here too, brushing aside the lights and keeping the uh, demons, those missing parts of themselves, safe. Um, so we have this wild hope that wells up, but also chilled with fear. Um, Will is bearing the knife, again, not so much uh, to attack as to protect um, them from the specters. And in this point, uh, the ghost of Lee Scoresby gets to uh, make one last appearance. Uh, and it's actually his perspective that we'll see at the end of this chapter, um, that beloved character. Uh, Jörg Bernison is perplexed. He is not sure what he is speaking to, but the ghost tells Will to hold up the knife, um, that they need to reunite with their demons and escape at once because more danger is coming. It's unclear exactly what that is. Um, Lyra and Will have their last farewell to Yorick, um, again reunited with his comrade Lee. Um, we're told that the light there in the grove is broken, muted. There's this ghostly struggle and the shadows of the trees, um, uh, the dashes of cold, um, the, sh the specters 
silent and the voices of ghosts all around. And finally comes a clear cry in the voice that Lyra loves and knows best, uh, Pantalaimon. And in the midst of this clamor of encouragement and of warning, they are um, uh, sort of protected by the trees themselves. Uh, the same way that the trees were told were defying the storm before. Um, and the way that Mary will interpret them and all of nature as defying the loss of dust. Um, but they can't resist against the specter. So here is a place where the physical form uh, offers no protection. Um, again, it's not what the specters are after. Their danger is different. Um, and there's the demons, the, the two wildcats um, trying to fight back. And there isn't time now to tell them apart, but Will thinks he could. Uh, he plunges the knife into a specter to see it boil away. Um, and it's only those valiant ghosts that are holding back the rest of them uh, until there's time for them to cut through to a safe world. Um, now, as Lee is wrestling with the pale specters, um, so again, they're not dark shadows, but pale ones, uh, he sees this world, uh, the world that all ghosts are freed into, um, the one that he and the other fighters uh, held back from a little longer. It's a prairie very like his homeland. Um, and he thinks he's been blessed uh, by this glimpse of, uh, of rest. Um, so again, the furthest distance away is also the point of the return here. Um, there is a wish that Lyra leaves unspoken here as she thanks Lee sort of her father figure, while Will uh, is looking at his father's ghost. Um, they um, can tell uh, that these uh, demons are one another's. And so that glance that they share um, as they hold each other's demon uh, is something that um, calls back to other moments in the story where they catch each other's eye and are feeling the exact same thing at the same moment. Um, so something different is happening here with the glance between Will and his father. He's going to, again, recast something that was said earlier in the story. Um, so it's not as drastic as the kind of a retrofitting that Pullman has to do with Lord Asriel and Mrs. Coulter, um, but is uh, pretty dramatic because this comes in Will's own voice. Um, he's interpreting his own story and saying that his father was wrong when he said that his uh, nature was to be a warrior and that he shouldn't fight against it, that he fought because he couldn't uh, avoid it and he had to, that he can't choose his nature, but he does choose what he will do and he will choose now because he's free. So with a smile of pride and tenderness, his father's ghost says, well done, my boy. Well done indeed. Um, this seems to be exactly what uh, Pullman uh, as an author uh, at least is 
longing for um, and certainly a very natural longing. Um, his autobiographical connection here, his own loss of the father, um, is easy to read into this, um, but also the psychological sense of his wrestling with past poets and epic uh, stories and trying to create space for his own uh, story to grow up in, um, for his own message to come through, um, and to have those past poets tell him that he's done well um, is certainly part of his his uh, project here as well. But um, with their purpose achieved, the ghosts now finally allow their atoms to drift apart. So what the knife does by violence, um, they are now doing by their own free will. Uh, and what happened to the authority now happens to them too. Um, the baffled specters uh, find that their uh, prey has deserted them. And the last scrap of the of the Aranat's consciousness, floating up like his balloon did, passes through the storm, comes out untroubled on the other side. Um, its last sense is of that movement upward um, and under the brilliant stars finds the last uh, atoms of his demon Hester waiting for him. So the final bit of love and perspective here that we get is a love of the entirety of one's own being um, that is echoed by the peace of nature, um, the heavens, if you like. Um, so all of that uh, illusion, um, reinterpretation of other stories and of Pullman's own story uh, is kind of summed up in a beautiful way here at the end of the chapter um, with the freedom of his main characters and of his minor, but uh, no less dearly beloved characters as well. Um, so again, along with those storytelling passages in the world of the dead, uh, I think it's fair to see this as a kind of climactic moment in the story. Um, a lot of work is being done here, uh, not just by the uh, dramatic prose, um, narrating these battles, um, but of course also with the uh, demands placed upon the reader to um, keep all of this in context and understand uh, stakes of what Pullman is presenting, um, his reinterpretation of stories, of consciousness, of betrayal, uh, and of love. So I think there's a lot more to this that we can return to, um, and I'll try to do that in my uh, reading of Galatea and Pullman's other earlier books um, to kind of get the full sense of what he's up to as an author, uh, where he fails and where he hopefully succeeds. So thanks again for listening uh, and take care.